Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats in an ongoing cyber war. It's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson. For our Deep Seas Threat Intelligence Report today, we're going to read a few articles around the web. Santa Barbara News Press today is reporting the nation's largest public pension fund was compromised. It says the California Public Employees Retirement System, or CalPERS, was recently informed of a cybersecurity breach which allowed an unauthorized third party to download its data. Now, personal information for retirees of the state, public agencies, school districts, and retirees of the judge's retirement system and legislators' retirement system was accessed when the Move It Transfer application, used by PBI Research Services, was compromised on June 6th. It included full names, social security numbers, and names of former employees and their family members. Now, Kelper announced the breach on June 21st. The Move It Transfer application encrypts data and is used by uh, the organization to facilitate accuracy in payments to retirees and beneficiaries and to prevent instances of overpayments or other errors. PBI provides Move It Transfer services to CalPERS. It also validates or verifies benefit information. The Move It Transfer app is used by thousands of organizations worldwide that were also impacted by the breach. Now, PBI has since resolved the vulnerability affecting the retirees and their survivors. This is just another primary example of, of zero-day vulnerabilities in a popular file transfer software that's used to move data. I've worked in banks for a long time in cybersecurity, and I can tell you one of the primary software packages that are used to, to move data in software are things like this. It helps facilitate things such as ACH wire transfers, for the longest time, that's how you move data. Instead of API-driven workflows, it was mostly file-based, and you use these file FTP servers to do this. So when you compromise a piece of technology like that is critical to how you function, how the backend functions and so forth, you're really going to land into a world of trouble. We also see here on Cybersecurity Hub website, too, that PwC and EMY were impacted by the Move It cyber attack. We also, I know of other customers that were impacted too as well. So it says here, multinational accounting firm PricewaterhouseCooper and Ernst & Young, or EMY, and among the seemingly ever-growing list of victims linked to a cybersecurity incident that originated with data, tra- data transfer server Move It. Now, a supply chain cyber attack launched by uh, move it or launched using a move it vulnerability by a ransomware gang named Klopp. This is a result in a series of data breaches for a large number of high profile brands, including Health Service Ireland and a payroll services provider Zealous. The breach of Zealous has also led to further breaches of other clients, which include the British Broadcasting Company, BBC, Airline British Airways, and health and beauty retail boots. Now, a spokesman for PwC said that the firm was aware that the MoveIt, a third-party transfer platform, had experienced a cybersecurity incident, which has impacted hundreds of organizations, including PwC. They went on to say, while the firm uses MoveIt software for a limited number of client engagements, 
Once the cyber attack against Movit was discovered, the firm stopped using the software and launched their own investigation into the cyber incident. Once again, supply chain management, these big organizations, they use this, this technology in order to be able to move files. It's part of day-to-day -day business. PwC, anyway, they're not in the business of writing software that moves files. They're there to do assessments for their customers and service their customers. So you rely on software vendors, products, and services in order to be able to do it. But it just shows some of the reliance that you're going to have with some of these, what we call celebrity vulnerabilities. It means there's a zero-day vulnerability that causes a security incident within your organization, it's patch, it's mitigation, and a lot of times it's discovery. It's all dependent on a third party. So it's always important to make sure you know who you're, uh, who you're dealing with. And that ends our cybersecurity intel update for the day, and hopefully you uh, like our episode that's coming up. Welcome to Cybersecurity America. It's Joshua Nicholson here again. Today's episode, in contrast to our Previous discussions on artificial intelligence, cloud security, burnout in cybersecurity field. We are taking a different approach today. We have the pleasure of hosting two remarkable CEOs from cybersecurity technology companies. Now, these individuals are at the forefront of driving innovative solutions to tackle the most complex cybersecurity challenges. With their extensive industry knowledge and proven track records, they have successfully developed applications and services that promote innovation mitigate risks, and enable modern companies to thrive in this ever-changing landscape of cyber threats. To add more value, we've, been, we've invited our esteemed guests to shed some light on top five critical aspects that the CISO community should be aware of. Their insights will help us gain a deeper understanding of these critical issues and just how they're driving innovation and solving some of those problems. So joining us today is Chris Lehman and Chris Freeman. So we have two Chris's. They'll share their expertise and perspectives on the compelling subjects. So let's dive in and explore the valuable insights that they bring to the table. So the first, my first guest today is Chris Lehman, and he is the chief executive officer. He's the CEO of a company called Safeguard Cyber. Now, Chris is a seasoned senior executive with more than 20 years of experience working for some of the highest growth, most successful technology companies in the world. Most recently, Chris was the chief revenue officer for ExtraHop where for over four years, he helped lead their transformation into cybersecurity's leading enterprise network detection and response, or NDR, company. During Chris's time at ExtraHop, he was responsible for all go-to-market functions, and they grew their AR over 700%, culminating in the successful sale of the business to Bain Capital and Crosspoint Ventures. Now, prior to ExtraHop, Chris held senior leadership positions at FireEye, Salesforce.com, EMC, and Documentum. Chris holds a BA in communications with a minor in business administration from the Pennsylvania State University. Welcome to the show today, Chris. Thanks for having me, Josh. And our other Chris that we have joining us today, Chris Friedman. Chris Friedman is a highly accomplished business leader. He has a diverse background in diplomacy, business, and philanthropy. Chris began his career serving as a diplomat at the Atlantic Treaty Association and founding a regional real estate development firm. He continued his career by founding and managing various corporations in the U.S., including My Benefits Lab, a national online provider of diagnostic testing with the nation's largest laboratories, and National Physicians Network. Now, in 2016, Chris co-founded OnDefend, an international cybersecurity firm where he currently serves as a CEO. 
Typically, Chris also has several charitable organizations he's involved with, including Best Buddies of Jacksonville, the American Red Cross of Northeast Florida, and then Chris graduated with his highest honors from the University of Florida. Welcome to the show, Chris Freeman. Nice to have you. Thank you, Josh. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. It's great to have both of you gentlemen here, and I think there's a lot of topics that we wanted to shift from. Like I was saying in the intro, we had we focused on some technical aspects in cloud and AI in previous episodes. I think a lot of our listeners want to hear how innovative technology is coming to market to make our jobs easier, to make cybersecurity more effective. And I thought it would really be nice to have you two gentlemen come on and just dive into some of those topics and some of those issues. I guess I'll start with you, Chris Lerman, if you want to give us your intake of what are the things that you're seeing out there with some of the perspectives you're hearing from companies, and then what are you all doing to solve that and what kind of problems are your technology addressing the market? That would be great. Yeah, sure. For starters, let me state the obvious. Our jobs as security professionals are not getting any easier. We always talk in cybersecurity about the asymmetric battle that we fight every single day. The attacker only needs to be right once. We need to be right every single time. And that makes for a very challenging job. And with the advent and popularity of new technologies, like generative AI is not going to just make businesses and employees more productive and efficient. It's also going to make bad actors more productive and more efficient. And it's generative AI, which is, seems to be the hot topic that everybody wants to talk about, is both an opportunity and a threat. And I would start with that. But as it relates to Safeguard Cyber, we're big believers in a couple of mega trends that we think that the industry really needs to get its arms around. And Safeguard Cyber was started with the belief that human beings are the biggest vulnerability in your security strategy. And it really training is very important. Awareness is very important with our employees. But the reality is the human eye can't detect a lot of the more sophisticated attacks that are targeted against them. And the data backs up this fact. The Verizon breach report from last year talks about the fact that 82% of all breaches were the result of the exploit of a human last year. And in so many ways, I feel like the industry has things upside down. We spend the majority of our time, money, effort, resource on securing infrastructure when the reality is the majority of the breaches occur because humans are being exploited. So that's one big problem that I think uh, those and security professionals need to continue to focus on. The second one would be the fact that the way these human beings, our employees communicate has changed dramatically really over the last 10 or 15 years. And it was with the popularity of the smartphone, the popularity of a lot of these cloud-based applications we're communicating in new ways when we conduct business. It's no longer just about email. So if the extent of your security strategy as it relates to communications is securing email with a secure email gateway or the native security controls in your email solution, that's not good enough because employees are communicating with collaboration apps like Slack or Teams. They're using mobile messaging applications like WhatsApp and Telegram and SMS. They're communicating in social channels like LinkedIn. And the problem is that security teams, by and large, haven't put any controls or any visibility in place with those alternative channels. So if you step back and think about 
what I just said. Attackers are becoming more productive and more efficient because they're using new technologies like generative AI. Human beings are your biggest vulnerability and variable. And human beings and your employees are using new ways to communicate that aren't currently protected. That's a recipe for a disaster. And Safeguard Cyber helps provide solutions to organizations to protect humans, make them more secure, and to secure the, the communication channels that they're using to, to conduct business today. Um, certainly, I, I don't want to uh, gloss over because these are not new trends and threats or problems and challenges for security teams, but they still remain very real. Alert fatigue, organizations are overwhelmed with the amount of alerts that they receive and they can't possibly investigate them all. And finding cybersecurity talent is very difficult. There's just a shortage of people out there that are properly trained. And all of those things collude with one another to create this challenge that we have as a security profession. All right, that's a good point. And how does your technology work? How would someone use that to solve those issues on the human side? So we provide a technology that monitors your entire communication attack surface. So all those channels that I just talked about, email, collaboration, messaging apps, social channels, we're deployed via API to API integrations with all those channels. So we're deployed very quickly and we provide what we call unified visibility. So instead of just giving you visibility into your emails that your employees are exchanging, we're gonna give you visibility into all of those channels. And we can detect things like impersonation, ransomware, phishing attacks, account takeover, coordinated attacks. Um, so we'll give you, because security always starts with visibility. We'll give you visibility into all those channels, number one. And then our technology is based on what's called an ontological architecture. An ontological architecture is designed to mimic the way the human brain thinks. So ontological architectures understand concepts, knowledge, data, and it's capable of understanding all of that information and then understanding the relationships that exist between entities based upon that information. So an entity could be a, an employee or a group or a customer or basically any type of entity that you can think of. So it's based on an ontological architecture and then we leverage machine learning so we can recognize patterns and then make probabilistic predictions of what might happen in the future based upon those patterns. And then finally, we're incorporating generative AI to look at all of the information that we're monitoring from all these communication channels. We're understanding via machine learning, not just active threats, but making predictions for threats that are about to occur where you're vulnerable. And then we're tying all of that back to your existing infrastructure to not, so we can not just detect threats, but also help you better understand the impact of those threats. I mentioned a moment ago that we're overwhelmed with alerts. Security operation teams are overwhelmed with the volume of alerts. And the very simple way you solve that problem is to better prioritize. And if you think about the importance of not just detecting threats, but understanding which threats are going to have the biggest impact, it's critical that you can do that. So if you, for example, in Safeguard Cyber, we can detect invoice and payment fraud. If we detect invoice and payment fraud for a $50 invoice, that's not going to take nearly as much priority 
as an invoice or payment fraud attack for a $50,000 invoice that somebody's trying to engineer. Or let's think impersonation. If you've got somebody, maybe in the marketing department, no offense to marketers, you're really important, but you're the marketer who's a mid-level individual, they don't really have any access to mission critical systems. If they're being impersonated, that's not going to be as big a threat or as big a priority as if somebody who's an administrator and has rude access to your mission critical systems in your IT department has. Because if that person's being impersonated, there's the risk that a bad actor could literally take down your business and not be able to operate. So you're going to prioritize that alert and that impersonation over others. So we're giving unified visibility. We're doing it with the most modern, sophisticated analysis engine on the planet. And we're enabling you to detect these common threats that are targeted against your employees, regardless of where they're communicating. That's exciting. Looking like you're doing a lot there in that space there. That's good to know. I always see that's the weakest link as well. I used to work at CoFence and used to be named Fish Me. Same thing, the human element of that, that always breaks down. And so it's really good to see that we're focused on a lot of those. And then Chris, from your perspective, what are the kind of things that you're seeing from, from CISOs? You got some exciting product. You and I have been knowing each other for a couple of years now. I've known the innovation that you're bringing to deep seas and so forth. So I'm ahead of the curve on some of your technology and platform capabilities. But how are you also addressing some of those top five risk areas that a CISO would have? Sure. I'd just like to touch on what Chris was talking about. The cross-channel is so important because one domain just isn't good enough. It's not going to solve the problem. So kudos to yeah. you, Chris. And to Chris's point, it's only getting harder right now. <clears throat> and it's only getting harder globally because these threat actors, these are enterprises. These are Fortune 500 organizations that are funded like Fortune 500. Some are fun for funded by nation states. Endless ability to attack us, they even work together against us. This is what we're up against, right? And they're always creating new workarounds from the security controls that we build. And so the problem that we are solving is that security defense teams, whether it's your internal network defense team for an enterprise or a third-party managed security provider, they're completely reliant on their security tools to work, to detect and alert them so they can do their job. And obviously these well-funded threat actors are constantly building workarounds to that with new tactics and techniques. So <clears throat> when we solve this problem, and I go through these five, or well, I'm gonna go through four issues that we hear consistently from CISOs, uh, I'm gonna say two things. One, I'm gonna maybe mess up your flow here because I'm gonna probably talk about each one and then talk about how we're solving it with Blindspot and give you a little bit of background on that. And then two, we think of it and wake up every day from the ground security team to the security leadership of how they're solving this problem and then proving that upstairs to executive leadership and all the way to the board who typically don't have the visibility and the confidence they need to move forward. So when Blindspot was built from, it's a great way to build a product. It was built from a service. It was built from us doing global security testing against companies, running attack activity, and then suddenly the network defense team wasn't responding. We have a meeting of what happened. And it turned out network access controls turned off four months ago by IT because one of their customers came over, had a Chromecasty thing, couldn't get it on the network. They turned it off for the meeting. And guess what? Probably they true. forgot to turn it back on. Yeah. These dynamic issues. So this is the problem that we're solving. And we're solving these security 
blind spots, right? I'm going to talk about the four things that we hear most from our customers and the problem we're solving to. So the first one, Josh, and I'm sure you recognize this, is that you're a CISO, you're at home, you get a call from a board member at 7 p.m. Hey, Josh, I just found out about one of our, one of our people in our industry that was just breached badly by some threat actor out of Russia. Are we prepared for this threat actor? And usually the response is, I think so. I have a pen test and I have a threat intel feed. There's a couple of issues. There's a great, two great arrows in the quiver. The problem with a penetration test to solve that problem, there's a couple of problems. A penetration test is really limited to the consultant's tactics and techniques they know. You know this, right? It's what you know. It's what you've had a history with, right? Yeah. It is highly unlikely that's going to map up one-to-one with specific threat actors targeting your industry. And pen tests are typically point-in-time exercises, right? And so if you're going to practice for the Olympics, would you practice once a year? No, you'd want to practice consistently. The second quiver, arrow of the quiver is threat intel feeds, right? That's what you have to really prepare for these threat actors. Well, studies are coming out that these threat intel feeds, it's a lot of data. It's not necessarily segmenting the threat actors targeting specific industries. And so these studies are showing that companies are preparing for threat actors that aren't even targeting them. So we've got to flip the paradigm. And that's what Blindspot is doing. What we're doing is we're utilizing threat intel, global threat intel, to build attack simulations, mapping to the tactics and techniques of various industry threat actors, whether it be ransomware, whether it be supply chain threat actors, whatever they are, we're going to map to them. We're going to be able to simulate them in your environment so that you can prove we would win if they attacked us. Would we win? Yes, we can prove that to the board. So if a board member asked you that question, you'd be able to answer that the very next day at work. How I think that'd be pretty empowering. Wouldn't you imagine that, Josh? Yeah, it sounds like you're doing it. So it's, and I know a bit about the service, but it's like MDR testing in many ways. I can't tell you how many intrusions or security incidents it would cause because something in the infrastructure broke, something on a desktop, the EDR was disabled, or some reason the EDR didn't uh, home into the server and didn't get its policy. There's oh, just a number of different issues where we see cloud ingesters. We thought logs made it into the SIM that was in the cloud. We come to find out, no, it switched from SEP to JSON format. All of a sudden we had these blind spots. And so there was one thing to have a tool or a security stack. It's a whole nother thing to know whether it's working or not. And I think one of the things y'all do that's so great is you have that, uh, you take the top 10 ransomware TTPs and you run that on one of your gold image hosts. It's not an agent that goes on everything, but one of those gold hosts and it tests those security controls just to see, did it detect this? And so we saw some EDR products don't detect DLL side loading very well. Some don't see Vault Strike. So it was just interesting to see some of those results and how it needed to be Adjusted. And it's a great segue, honestly, to the second issue that we hear consistently from security leadership specifically is I need operational assurance that these tools, the policies, and the team we have are going to work. What is IT up to? What is a third party up to? What is my managed security provider doing? Am I being protected in real time right now? So that is the second thing we're solving is to build up, as you say, right, run attacks find these security blind spots, find new alerting rules, right? Mm -hmm. That need to be updated so that we can run against them on a regular basis to practice and make sure that we're prepared for those threat actors. So these things can't be exploited. So it really is, again, a paradigm shift of we're going to do this consistently. We're having threat intel. We're building simulations. We're going to run it against our tools or our third-party MSSP and make sure that everybody can do their job against these global threat actors. So thank you for that setup. The second issue And the third issue is closely tied to this, and this is downward pressure from leadership to executive leadership to CISO leadership. CISOs get 
asked all the time from CFO, procurement, CEO, whomever, we're spending a lot of money. We're spending a lot of money on the security program of yours or this third-party provider or both. How do we know it's working, right? How do we know? And so they don't have that kind of visibility and that assurance. And typically, a security leader, we do a pen test, right? When pen tests are great. They're monstrously valuable. Nobody's more creative than a human and how a human thinks and works their way through the network. But the problem is it's not going to demonstrate the security tools working or not, right? We just talked about all the threat actors. It's not going to one-to-one demonstrate, is your EDR functioning correctly or is it not? It can be prove our SIM is functioning or not. And that's exactly what we're doing is being able to run these attacks and test end-to-end our tool sets and our humans, right? Can they respond in real time when running these attacks? That is truly proving the investments are working or running against our managed security provider to make sure they're going to respond every day. Right now, obviously, yeah. this is being used by the security providers to prove that proactively. But the point is, we're spending money to be able to prove it works. And honestly, we've even seen the opportunity to get new budget. So we were working on a, a global airport with a global airport. They had been begging to get more security investment, Josh. And uh, they thought they needed a couple more tools. The board would not approve it. We came in there. We ran this. We exposed complete gaps of blindness. And uh, sure enough, they got the investment and the two tools they needed immediately. That's another one is proving the investment is working and then attain more investment uh, from there. The next problem is, and we're solving too, and this is done by the consultants and the MSSPs and the direct customers, is demonstrating resilience. That's a big word right now. Resilience, right, to a cyber breach. If we are breached, can we respond? How do they do it now, Josh? Is it a tabletop exercise? It's an IR plan. Test the IR plan with a tabletop exercise, right? It depends on the level of maturity. A lot of times it's just this walkthrough. Let's get on board. We had an event. This is it. And you walk through the different teams. Who would they call and so forth? So it's more the tabletop exercise in some cases. But now we're moving to the simulating an actual attack. Yeah, we sit down on these tabletops, right? And they have the technical team, right? The, the cyber network defense team. PR, legal, everybody, right? Executive team. All right, we just got breached, right? We just got hit with ransomware. Go. And the first person up, first group up, is the internal network defense team or the third-party MSP. And they always say, we identify it, we neutralized it, contained it, we got all the data, the rest of the team, continue with the game plan, right? The playbooks are good. And we scoff at that because we just talked about these blind spots that are prevalent, right? And all these tools and networks. Instead of pretending the attack's happening, why don't we actually simulate the attack and really prove that the IR plan would work in the real world. And so how we're seeing this done in the wild is typically it's a technical tabletop one week, right, Josh, where you run the attack with the technical team, they see how they would respond, time it out, and they come informed with all this data to the executive tabletop. And it has been very empowering. So these are the problems we're solving. All of these corporations are reliant on these security tools. The network defenders are reliant on these tools. These tools fail either because things control change on your end. If you're an MSSP, they can fail in the, in the customer's end. Nice. These are blind spots. This is why those statistics in that Verizon report are so gosh darn high, right? That's why they are breached when the human makes a mistake, Chris. That's where the disaster comes after the fact. They're not able to respond. That is exactly what we're empowering them to do for a couple of percentage points. We can prove their security spend works, right? It's functioning and prove it upstairs. And I honestly think of it as CISO insurance at this point, right? We've done everything. I'm going to run this on a regular basis. And if I need more investment, I'm going to show the need for it. And I'm going to show it on a regular basis so that if we are breached, right? Guys, I told you, right? We needed this. So I think it's the next pillar in securing leadership's job. Yeah, and Chris, to, your, to Lorman, uh, to your point, if from a 
personnel perspective, you're testing the human element. Seems like Chris Friedman, you're testing the technology element, and the two are comprehensive for any kind of defense program that's there. And it doesn't matter how well the technology detects and responds to things if the humans who are driving the car, so to speak, keep wrecking into the guardrails and smashing the vehicle up. So, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think this, what we're seeing from a breach perspective is that one of the reasons we thought breach attack simulation was a good solution for this was for some of our customers was just that they did the pen testing to try and prove that analytics detect these certain threats. But then you wait six months for the testers to come back. That's not, that's more of a compliance. I get six months to address something before the next test is run. And we didn't find where pen tests were a good uh, attestation of compliance of a certain time period. It wasn't conducive to rigor of your analytics and your controls to detect things and continue to move forward. I couldn't make a change and see, hey, did it actually detect cobalt strike night? Let me adjust this. Now it does. It was not a tool that dynamically improve your detection capabilities. It was but the ability to run it almost like a managed services. I was telling you before is that in the Marine Corps, we'd have these communications tents and you'd walk into the communications tents. And before it was your shift, to take over, they would give you this sheet that just had red, green. These are the radio nets that are up. These are the frequencies that you can talk to. These are the birds that are in the air and so forth. So you had this like readout, almost like what's up gold of things that are happening. And you don't see that when the security team walks in. Do they know that everything's working? Is there some report yeah. that says the SIM's been ingesting, the EDRs, yes, they've all been communicating with the console. We've tested a detection alert. We see the alert make it through and our MDR provider responded at 7 a.m. The piping's working. Here you go. And then you're in the day of responding to different security incidents they have. I don't know. That just seems like a great way to do it. I just don't know anyone doing that except you're doing something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. And I know, I'm sure, Chris, you love metaphors because as a CEO, we typically talk to other executives, not necessarily. So I think of it as a, I like to use the home metaphor, Josh. You have a home security system. You hope ADT will respond. They don't really know if the sensors are going to functionally send an alert all the way through the pipeline to their team. Wouldn't it be great if ADT came to your home every day and opened up all your doors and windows to make sure that they could do their job? That's what DMCs is doing with Blindspot. That's what Blindspot empowers with MSSB and MDR providers. But to your point, Chris's company is stopping them from getting in in the first place, which I think it is cutting as edge, amazing technology, cross domain. I think it's awesome. And in case they do get in, yeah, that's where we come in. It's so important that I think sometimes we get overly focused on prevention and sometimes we get overly focused on just detection and response when it's really striking the right balance about all the above, right? You obviously want to, wherever possible, prevent the the breach or compromise from occurring. But if it's going to happen, you need to make sure you can respond very quickly. And I do think the good news is that the industry and boards have become more understanding. I think not too long ago, a CISO could be fired just because the business was breached. And and I think that boards and the executive teams around security professionals are becoming more sophisticated in understanding um, breaches are inevitable. It's really a function of blocking and preventing as many as you can, but then responding to the breach as quickly as possible. It's really the sign of, of a strong security team. Absolutely. I agree completely. Yeah. And what are some of the other things that we're seeing out there? Some of the confusion 
I'm seeing is just the rationalization of technology. There seems to be too many tools. And I think there was a rush towards when we had all the ransomware attacks and we had insurability issues and companies couldn't get insured. And it was just this rush to throw every tool at it in order to be able to solve that. But I think they don't spend enough time understanding how to use those tools. It's almost like I buy the guitar for Christmas, but I spend no money on the lessons. And so all I do is bang away at it and make some noise. And it seems like a greater orchestration is needed in how do we respond to these attacks? How do we use technology? And what is a human process change versus do I really need something else monitoring and alerting me? It's so much easier to prevent and lock down certain services than it is to filter it and allow certain permissions and, and so forth. Uh, security. Go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. I was just going to say the security and convenience are at odds with each other, right? So the business and security are always fighting with each other. I'm sorry to interrupt, Chris. Please go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's rare that when we're having a conversation with a CIO or a CISO that they don't ask us, okay, so if we buy you, what can we get rid of? And that is that's a very common question to your point, Josh, about rationalization. There's, despite some very high-profile CEOs of major corporations saying there's a blank check for cybersecurity. The reality is that's not the case, and that's not the case for the large majority of corporations. And you're right. I think there's some indigestion in the industry in general because of all the tools that have been acquired. But I'll tell you, I think that there's tons of opportunity to rationalize. In the case of Safeguard Cyber, one of the ways that we've been able to fund our purchase is organizations' purchase of our technology is that as companies have moved to cloud native email solutions, you look at legacy technology like the secure email gateway, which is really tied to more on-prem email solutions. Right. Almost the entirety of the functionality that a secure email gateway gave you is now available as part of the native security capabilities of cloud-based email solutions, M365 right. or Gmail. So you can shift spend as you evolve and move to a cloud-based email solution. You can take the spend that you used to put towards your SAG and apply it towards more sophisticated detection technologies like Safeguard Cyber. DLP is another technology that I think is ripe for disruption because the promise of DLP, while it's important, is never really, it, the technology has never really fulfilled the promise. There's a lot of ongoing administration and tuning that's required. It's not particularly sophisticated. You're doing keyword searches and the and people better understand now the, the technology, or at least maybe they've heard of it before, large language models. And that's because of the, the notoriety of ChatGPT and generative AI. But large language model technology, which you know we've been using since 2016, gives you the ability to really go beyond just keyword search and understand tone and intent, uh, sentence structure, so that you can pick up on the nuance of what's being attempted by reading and reviewing a conversation and a message. And these technologies, the more modern technologies, are providing opportunities for CISOs to rationalize their spend and get more bang for their buck at the same time. Absolutely. Oh, go ahead, Josh. Okay. Oh, I was just going to make a note. We see inside the network often tool overlap from over-purchasing, and so we're able to remove a tool there that's not necessary for the detection alerting pipeline. 
But the other thing we're seeing is that they have the tools. They check the box. And I mentioned they don't get to practice. Maybe they get to practice in a range, right? That's not their real network, right? And so they're not leveling their own battlefield before the attack. And so that's one thing that we've really sought to help is let's give them a chance to practice on their production network so they would know how the result would be in, in that environment, their real environment. Yeah. I think we had one or MDR customers in which we didn't support the EDR platform. So what we're trying to do is send the logs to Splunk and then Splunk was going to create notables and then we would pick it up via notables. And of course that complexity breaks from time to time or doesn't catch all, everything that's supposed to. And then we have gaps in visibility and so forth. So it's, we think that these tools are panacea, but one of the biggest trends I've saw is just this move from the bean counters would come to me and say, you're Sim, you're ingesting too much. The events per second too high and the bill's too high for AWS. So what can you do to log less? Let's wait a minute. I have a visibility problem in the first place. And now you're telling me I have reduced logging. And then they got to the point where they wanted me to business justify each of the log sources because they oh, wow. just thought they would just cost analyze this thing all the way until the bill is where. And so I hated that they put us on this collision course when I was first building Sims 15, 20 years ago, we would buy hardware and we depreciated over three to five years. And I would buy four, five, six, eight terabyte worth of drive space. And I would use as much space as I needed to capture my logs. And that would be my determination there. And I didn't have a bill that changed every month. If I wanted to change the logging, I had the infrastructure, maybe I added another cabinet of drives to increase capacity. But all of a sudden, when you put it in the cloud, we have this huge pushback on what we're monitoring and what we're not. Now, it's saved us in many ways because you used to have this mentality that the SIM is you just take all your data and you throw it in it and it magically figures out all the security events that are happening. It's almost like you just throw its data to it and it's a big AI system and it'll figure it out. And it's failed miserably. We have thousands of logs that come into systems. They don't generate the right alerts, keeping up with some of the use cases Deep Seas, we're pretty good at that. We have an analytic library that we use at several different customers. But you can imagine someone who doesn't have the team and the expertise we do has to keep up with that. And what do you respond to? So I guess, gentlemen, what have you all noticed is the business case drivers of today? Do you think it's mostly consolidation, more push towards managed services and cloud? Do you think it's trying to bring tools to onboard to solve different issues? Where do you see some of the CISOs thinking about and what are, what's hot on their eyes right now or in their mind right now? I'm happy to give it a shot. If you, want to, uh, you, you go first this time. <laughs> is this generally or is this in the context of what we bring to the table? In general, yeah. We heard what your solutions bring to the table specifically, but what's outside of that in general? What, do, what are you seeing in, out there in the future for us? So can you just go back to the question again? So what is it? Can you repeat that real quick? Yeah. So as they're looking at the future, we talked about tool rationalization. We talked about other things from a costing perspective, but what is in 2023 driving? So, sometimes it's the year of the compliance, right? Something comes out, it's the year of the compliance. Then it seems like this is the year of the AI, right? Everything is AI enabled and the trend towards that. But I don't really know if budgets are changing because of it. Right now, what we tried to capture is having an AI readiness assessment, for instance, which would say, what data elements do you have? Where is it at? Can you use large language models? Where where does it make sense? Because we're having CISOs that are being asked by the board, how do you take advantage of this? How do we get to better contextualization alerts? How do we do this? How do we do that? 
And it's almost like you need to be able to harness those questions and then in some cases enable them to providers like yourselves to be able to solve some of those things. And it's just, it seems like that conversation is a breakdown. How do you talk about AI capabilities and then talk about your users and how do you do it without privacy concerns? It's a big loaded question, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, there's no question that this is the year of try to work within your budget and get the most out of your budget you can. There's no question about that. AI is definitely the incoming thing. We implement AI, obviously, ourselves to execute attack activity, to create new campaigns, all sorts of use cases. And I think Chris would probably be better set to, to talk about the future of how AI is going to fight AI, which is probably where this is going inevitably, which is going to be really interesting. I, I think it, there are emerging technologies that that have just gotten on Gardner's Quadrant, right? They created Quadrant 4 that, that CISOs are trying to learn about. And there's the old sort of, there's the height curve, right? Where so Bass was at the top of the height curve, right? At the tippity top for CISOs. In 2000, I think it was 21, right at the tippity top. And then everything goes in the trough of disillusionment. And then eventually comes up to accepted like vulnerability management, right? And so we're seeing, as an example, the Bass tools churn out to these direct corporations who are not large enough or mature enough to manage a tool like that based on the cost of the tool, right? So what are we getting out of it? What is it improving for what we're paying? And how can we prove the business case, Josh, right? And that's where some of those tools are failing because maybe the teams aren't mature enough. One of our tricks to this is to bring it as a managed service with us and our partners. So it's not just a tool. You get tools and humans to support your team to make sure this is a success from end to end so we can skip that trough. But I think, again, one of the issues is it's really neat tech. It's solving a problem, but can we prove the value in real time to upstairs? I think that's a key point. You're hearing that, huh, Chris, as well, is just justifying, a, a better later, justifying your spend moving forward and how it relates to a strategy. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. You were going to say something? Yeah, here's the good news. Josh, you said that was a loaded question. There was a lot in there, but I'll tell you, there's when you step back and you think about business justification, right? Business justification has always come down to three things at the highest level. Are you helping the business make money? Are you helping the business save money? Are you helping the business reduce risk? And historically, cybersecurity has always fall, fallen into the third bucket. We're going to help you reduce risk. And now, ultimately, that can be tied back to saving money, right? Ensuring that an organization doesn't have a disruption where they can't produce drugs or cars or whatever it is that they're producing, or it's brand reputation. So you're going to help help them from having their brand damaged, all the risk reduction piece. But to Chris Friedman's point and to your point, Josh, the good news is that in a year where there's a lot of folks who are skittish about the economy, it's not a, an environment where everybody's spending hand over fist. Um, it's also a year where new technology, generative AI, and AI in general has really been pushed to the forefront. And if you look at the stock market, there's a lot of folks big, smart money who are betting that these generative AI technologies are going to be the next major productivity boom for all business. And when you get those productivity booms, it helps create not just uh, an opportunity to reduce risk in cybersecurity, but to make your employees more productive. And there's so many possibilities with generative AI, and we're actively going to be releasing our next version of Safeguard Cyber is coming out later this summer. We have a generative AI component to it. 
And there's this notion of a co-pilot, right? And yeah. Microsoft has come out with their co-pilot. I've seen other, I don't know if anybody's been able to trademark that phrase just yet, because I've seen a bunch of companies talk about their co-pilot. And it's an opportunity to make their employees smarter and more efficient. So you can take things like bannering in an email where, you know, you would serve up a notice that says, hey, this is a suspicious email. Are you sure that this is safe? And you could take it to another level, right? So it's not just a banner, but you could actually guide that end user through the first steps of an investigation to determine whether or not this is something that is risky and malicious or not. And then there's the security team where, again, via generative AI, we're going to be able to help make them more efficient, not just through better analytics, of doing things like not just risk scoring, but impact analysis, but also to guide a first level security analyst who maybe doesn't have five, 10 or 15 years of investigation experience, making them much more productive. I think that necessity is the mother of invention, or maybe it's just good timing that in a period where people are worried about the economy and how much money is coming in, new technologies have emerged that are really providing a massive opportunity to reduce risk and give their and make their employees more productive and to give them time back. One of the things that you asked at the beginning of the show, Josh, is what are the what's on the top of mind of CISO? One of the more subjective kind of qualitative, or maybe it's not qualitative, maybe it's quantitative, pieces of feedback that I always get is, how are you going to give me more time? Yeah, it's about time. Because I don't have enough time in the day. How can you give me more time? And this is where better prioritization, making your employees productive, actually end up giving time back and making more time in the day for your employees. And it's an exciting time because I talked about AI in general, but at Safeguard Cyber, and I talked about an ontological architecture but there's a lot of different ML techniques that are, go into to creating artificial intelligence. And we're using basically three core uh, machine learning or AI analysis techniques, large language model analysis. So that's number one. Number two, behavioral analysis. But in addition to that, we're combining social knowledge graph analysis, right? So we're analyzing and understanding the intent and tone of messages we're combining that with traditional behavioral analysis to say, okay, hey, Christian Josh usually email me from the East Coast. Why is it that today via geolocation, we see that they're emailing us from Russia or North Korea, right? Or why is it that this person is now reaching out and connecting with Josh and Chris because they've never communicated with them before? And they also happen to be in a location that is typically risky. So you combine all of these things and it's what gives you the ability to really understand the context of a risk, right? The techniques they're using to communicate, what the objectives are, is there anything particularly anomalous about the situation and the context in terms of individual or the message that they're sending, the time, the location. And again, you add all those things up and you can really get a very rich picture of the situation oh, yeah. that you're in. 
it helps you better prioritize, gives you time back, makes you more efficient. I get, I get your perfect use case. Sits on the phone. So when your wife texts you, do you know what day it is today? It automatically goes out and goes figure that out and says, your response today ought to be happy birthday. This is what we planned. It would be really great if you had that husband bot assistant that auto. Yeah. Josh, you didn't do that, please. That'd be great. (laughs) I I want to do that. Hey, your wife texted you and said this and this, and you type in something and it pops and goes, no, I really don't think you ought to send that. Not today. (laughs) It touches on what Chris was talking about. I mentioned earlier, you know, some of the first adopters of new tech is, Cyber criminals. So how could you be? They're going to be using AI prevalently. So how could you possibly defend it without using AI? It's why Chris's company do it, does it. It's why we're doing it, right? It's literally creating that level out of them. I'll tell you, Chris, you were talking about the carrot of time savings, which is definitely a critical thing or the other variables. There's also the stick that's happening right now, right? Compliance restrictions are coming harder to abide by. Legislation's coming down the pike that we know about, right? That's not requiring you just to prove that you have controls but prove they work and eventually prove they work on a continual basis. We're interacting with insurers who are requiring validation of what these, what's going on in the environments. And so I think there's also the stick element that's going to make this part of the cost of doing business moving forward for sure. Chris, I got to tell you, I'm, I could not agree more. And I think it's a really good thing that this stick is coming because for far too long, and I may offend some people in the audience when I say this, but I think way too many Go security and compliance professionals have pursued a strategy of plausible deniability. Right. And what I mean by that is they've checked all the boxes, right? So if they get hit, right, they can say, but I did everything I needed to do. And right. that was a, that was good enough. And yeah. I think that the days of that are very quickly coming to an end where it's not good enough to just have checked all the boxes. You actually have to stop the problem, right? And you have to be able to respond quickly to the problem to make sure that you don't have any damage done to the business or the organization, whether that's compliance violations or cybersecurity threats. But I think that, like I said, it's just no longer good enough to check the box. Yeah, it's almost like a mantra, right? Compliance is not cybersecurity. It's not cyber security. It's not, you're not cyber secure if you comply once a year. So let's remember that's coming from accountants though, right? That view compliance with something, meaning you're not going to get audited or you're not going to get tax evasion or something like that. So there's these groups that kind of infect the business and all that think that compliance is security because they view it from a legal risk perspective and they don't tie the two together. They don't realize you could still be compliant and completely insecure. And hopefully you would think the two would come closer together. You're compliant and you're secure, and that's what you hope for. But sometimes we see a real difference. Compliance and security are peanut butter and jelly if done correctly. They go really well together. And uh, I'll credit our chief revenue officer, Mike Canfield, for that line. But I love it because I think it's it's so spot on. Mine is artificial intelligence is no match for natural stupidity. So. (laughs) I think it's stupidity because being in cybersecurity, like I never thought anybody would do that. I can't believe they did that. I remember when I was a land admin at Norfolk Grumman, I get called that there was a senior VP's desktop hardware was broken. They just said the hardware was broken. So I go out there and come to find out he uses the CD-ROM tray for his coffee cup. And that broke. He really thought the CD-ROM was for the coffee cup. Had no idea. Actually, compact discs go in there to install the software. 
So I've just seen some crazy things over the air. You'd be amazed what people do sometimes. What's going to be fun, funny, not funny, is in this concept of generative AI or AI in general, there's this concept of hallucination. Yeah. Where basically the technology invents things. They make things up. And I'm sure that we're going to get some real doozies over the next few years as the technology refines itself. There's going to be some pretty hilarious hallucinations that we witness. Oh, yeah. And I was talking to this Secure Onyx AI expert on last show, and he said, yeah, you could eventually see models where they come out with their hallucination rates, just like you have cars that come out with their gas mileage rate and so forth. And it's just amazing knowing, okay, that model will screw up. What's it doing? Cancer diagnostic. I wonder if that's a great one to have a high hallucination rate uh, for. So it's a little scary knowing that they have those issues in those models. But uh, yeah. I, I think hallucination rate is sounds a lot more interesting than just false positives, right? Or efficacy, but it'll, I'm sure the, the lingo and terminology is going to evolve along with the technology. Absolutely. My, my suspicion is that you're going to have like first level interview managers being AI bots, where they ask you a series of questions and you come generally in some score, just like an IVR type system. And then you got to be careful on how is it making biases or decisions. And if you can't go back to how it made that decision, then how can you trust it? Especially if it can hallucinate and go off. So can you imagine someone did a review on someone and the bot looked at all these variables and said, okay, you're only getting X amount of raise because of this. And you can't ever walk it back and go, how did it actually do that? Like in a court of law, you can walk through a human and ask them questions. How did you derive your answer. You can't really do that with an AI model. Mm -hmm. To understand all the points that it connected to would be highly complicated. In some cases, you wouldn't really know why it went that route. To me, that's scary. Until you have some kind of traceability, how would you know? But at the same time, same thing with a human. How would you know that they're actually honest about something or being biased about something else or they're being truthful? It seems to be a challenge no matter what we do. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, as I said in the beginning of the show, this technology is not just going to make the good guys more efficient. It's going to make the good guys and gals, it's going to make the bad guys and girls more efficient and effective. You know, you think about a lot of the ransomware notes or phishing scams that are run, a lot of times they're being run by people who are non native English speakers. And the human eye can detect grammatical errors or poor sentence structure, and it would be enough to at least raise your eyebrows and say, is this, right. is this real? But now, just type into ChatGPT, please write a persuasive email for me to obtain information about you come up with it. And it will be next to impossible for the human eye to detect those types of, yeah. it, it'll get much harder and harder for them to detect when something's not right. And one thing yeah, I, that I found I'm out not- that was really interesting, I didn't know they did this, is that generative AI When it goes to do a math problem, if I say three plus four, I thought that it actually called some math function, some Python function, and actually passed the variables and got the response back. And we find out, no, it's just recruit from it's predicting what that answer would do. If people have said in the past three plus four is seven, that's how it learns the answer. But if other people in the model said three plus four is 44, and there's more than one sample of it, it will actually give 44 as the answer because it's not doing actual math. It's doing predictive language. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. crazy to me. That I would have thought it's doing actual mathematics. There's a li- math library behind it. 
And just to come yeah. to that point, is guessing the answer based on something someone else said? I think that's a great way to illustrate and explain to people why this technology will hallucinate. Over a period of time, obviously, the easy questions like that, basic math, whatever, while it'll be a prediction, it'll have enough history that it can feed on to make sure that it's making the proper prediction. It'll become much more efficient and smart over time. But like I said, I think that's a really good way to explain to people why this technology will not always be accurate. Solving a math problem without using the logic of mathematics, but what somebody else said, it sounds like me in high school, actually. <laughs> sounds like you on your history test. <laughs> what was the answer to that? It was B, wasn't it? But that's what I'd be afraid of. And they were also talking about the models can you can make it forget. Because I was like, what if it was remembering things I don't want it to remember anymore? The perfect thing I think of God created humans is our ability to forget things. Imagine <laughs> if we had photographic memory of every insult every put down, every negative situation, and we got a glaring reminder of it in real time. But we seem to be imperfect and we forget things and it makes us happy. Yeah, I thought, thought that's what your wife was for, Josh. What? I that's what your wife was for. She remembers every little thing you've ever done wrong. I don't need Although, Google. I have a wife. My wife knows everything. Yeah. And I just say, yeah, that's right, baby. It's amazing how accurate you <laughs> are. But I wonder what my wife's hallucination rate is. If I ask her that, hey, what's your hallucination rate? She'll go, I don't know. What's your sleeping situation? What does the model predict for your sleeping situation? Yeah, I could see that happening. Like I, I told him, I didn't want an Alexa in the house. Can you imagine that? As I have an ar argument about, no, I didn't put that in the dirty clothes or whatever it is. And then some Alexa times in and go, no, Josh, actually, you, you didn't do it. It was blah, blah, blah. Now I have a virtual wife and a physical wife. And now I've got to battle both of them. So and it's going to be interesting as we move forward. And then how it helps in safety, like I'm looking to possibly buy a Tesla. So I've been looking, test drove a Tesla the other day and the AI that's built into it, there was one of them was crash avoidance that the dealer guy was talking about. He was driving to Raleigh from the dealership here in Charlotte and there was an 18 wheeler that merged in his lane and unbeknownst to him, the actual car took evasive action and jumped to the right by two, three degrees avoided the accident and was able to come back on it. He didn't touch the wheel at all. And it was enabled. And he said that saved from an accident. I don't think I would have been killed on it, but I definitely would have been hit by the back end of that 18 wheeler. And he said the car just did it. It noticed it. It jumped off to the right and avoided that accident. And I noticed that as well. It gave context. If I started going off the road, it beeped and told me I'm going off the road. And so it was really interesting. But to actually have the full drive capabilities, it's a software package. You got to enable it and uh, and so forth. And people go, do you really trust these autonomous vehicles that are driving on the road? I don't know. I'm from New Orleans. I don't trust people on the road with cars. I've seen some devastating people that should not be driving. And I'd probably... I don't know. I'd accept the AI bot driving more than some of the people I've seen driving. But uh, you have to know what to trust, right? I think most of the internet is not going to be written by human in the near future, right? It's not going to be written by human. You're not going to know what was written by humans. What Chris is doing to trust who you're interacting with, all these things are absolutely so critical. In fact, Chris, I want to follow up. I know you know this, Josh. We have some patents on an out-of-band way to verify you're interacting with who you think you're interacting with. I'd love to pick your brain on that at some point. So, yeah, Josh, that'd be great. I'd love that. <laughs> Gentlemen, we're running out of time. I really appreciate both of y'all being on the show, having Chris and he, Chris here, and we covered a lot of different things. But uh, I really hope to talk to y'all more in the future here. But any any parting words you think our audience would like to know? 
Just, uh, I guess my, my, my shameless plug would be that if your employees are using anything other than email to communicate, you need to contact us. Very good point. It's not shameless. It's a great plug. Chris Freeman? For direct customers, for a couple percentage points of your entire security spend, you can prove it works and show that value upstairs. And for MSSPs, you can actually verify that your entire detection learning system is working all the time, show that to your customers, and basically say, if you don't see this report every day, your current provider is not necessarily doing their job. And I think you have both have LinkedIn pages. Everybody ought to follow that. They have a lot of good content that's going out there. And Chris Freeman, you're at www.ondefend.com, right? And the other, Chris, you're at, what is your full URL? SafeguardCyber.com. SafeguardCyber.com. Thank you so much for joining. And everybody else, stay tuned and stay secure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, don't forget to hit subscribe, comment, share, and turn on those notifications so you don't miss an exciting episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure.